Welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. I'm Inyash Brodsky. I'm Steven Zuber, and today we have two exciting guests. Inyash, you want to introduce them? Yeah, uh, we have two authors and podcasters as well. Uh, Daystar Eld. Hey, <laughs> yeah. I'm Daystar. And Alexander Wales. I wanted to pull you guys together to talk about rationalist fiction a bit because uh, now, okay. First of all, before I get into my welcome spiel, is it rationalist fiction or rational fiction? That's yes. a great question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. You, so the, you want to? Yeah. I'll, I'll take this one. There, there are two separate categories, I guess, where rational is um, the definition I use is like thinky fiction that's that's focused on thought and um, how people think and has a lot of thought put into it and is meant to evoke um, thought as opposed to emotion in some way or in complement to emotion. Whereas rationalist is more um, fiction that teaches rationality or um, hits on rationality concepts in some way. So would you say a good example of the first category of rational fiction is like The Martian? Yeah, yeah, that would be a good example of the first category. And then the second category is much uh, rarer. Um, Daystar's Pokemon Origin of Species uh, and Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality. Um, I think one of the er examples was Flatland, maybe. Yeah, I've seen that come up on the sub, too. Yeah, my, my definition tends to fall towards more like if you are writing a rationalist fiction, um, your main character is much more likely to be explicitly or implicitly um, rationalist themselves, and so like from whatever perspective it's being written from, you're gonna kind of like pick up on um, rationalist ideas and like techniques and psychology and like all that kind of stuff, like from their perspective as they go about their life and like address challenges and all that stuff. Whereas rational fiction is more just like a top-down approach of um, this world is going to try to be constructed in a rational manner. These characters are going to try to act um, rationally, which does not mean unemotionally right or inhumanly it just means not like no idiot ball holding for people who know that trope um <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and all that sort of thing that like we kind of sort of mostly assume is just like quote unquote part of good fiction um but kind of is really not like there's like a whole bunch of great fiction that does not obey um some of these rules or any of these rules sometimes um so it's not the same thing as good fiction but it tends to be similar in many ways um, and a lot of um, a lot of really great like stories that Alexander writes, for example, uh, like there's no specific rationalist character, but all the characters and the world itself are really well constructed. And like you can kind of um, see that like a lot of thought was put into them and like the characters themselves can still be smart in and of itself, but they might not necessarily be considered rationalist by some people. OK, right. Like uh, the characters in um, Metropolitan Man. There's no one there who goes off on a spiel about the methods of rationality, but there's, mm -hmm. but everyone there is is thoughtful in a way that the way that I kind of think about it from the non, uh, very fluent in this perspective is that mm -hmm. when I'm reading rational or rationalist fiction, I never kind of shake the book and be like, why are you doing this? Right. <laughs> um, where instead, yeah. instead you might instead you might actually go, why is he doing this? Like, because it's something that you can predict if you think about it. Yes. It's something that you should be able to actually like piece together. No, that's a really good point. Yeah, and the the idiot ball trope. I always chuckle because I think of uh, the the orb of confusion from SpongeBob. Um, but that's basically where characters act either 
typically stupidly for the character or uncharacteristically stupidly for the character. I think that's the idiot balls when they do something stupid, mm-hmm. really to the point of moving the plot along. Right. Because uh, like, oh, yeah, they need to, I don't know, go run upstairs, you know, from the from the invading monster or whatever, rather than run outside because reasons, you know, because mm-hmm. the yeah, so that that sort of thing. And and a lot of it is just if you're writing fiction and you just want to get some emotion or resonance across and you don't care that much or i mean moving the plot along is is part of it and i think a lot of people just screw up writing when they need to move the plot along and they don't know how to do it and so they just have stuff that doesn't make sense happen to to do that but i think i I don't know it's one it's a weird kind of thing like why do these faults happen and whether or not they are faults in their respective media I, I do like that rationalist fiction has that as a um, ideal because lots of times uh, it is just kind of laziness that that makes um, that makes an author do that use use some kind of stupid trope or or idiot ball thing to simply move the plot along for the sake of the plot and like the with rational fiction you the author has to sit down and actually come up with a really good reason which means they get more into their characters. Uh, personality and and mind and they get more into the world and it just makes the fiction better when you're forced to not use shortcuts like that in my opinion i like to think so too yeah oh i want to quickly give bona fides since i jumped in with the question about the definition before uh i did that part daystar eld is a writer of the the big one is pokemon wait, wait, origin of the species right yep excellent and uh, Alexander Wales is probably best known for Metropolitan Man, but has written a bunch of other shorter works. And right now you are working on Worth the Candle? Yep, under the uh, Cthulhu Ray Jepsen pseudonym. And both of you guys together are, have a podcast called Rationally Writing, which is about writing rational fiction, um, which is why you are here today. Yeah, we try to cover like writing tips in general, but also just from the perspective of rationally writing as best we can. So the reason I had you guys on specifically is because I've been reading rational fiction since, I mean, since Eliezer invented the genre, basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've been trying to write for a while, and I've found that I can write fiction sometimes. But, like, not only can I not write rational fiction, I still don't entirely know what it is. There seems to be this debate a lot. And I like that definition of, like, thinky fiction. But is there – there's a lot well, of fiction out there that's thinky, right? Yeah. So one thing I want to point out again quickly is that, like, not all fiction that's good is rational and not all – obviously not all rational fiction is good. Um, I've happened to have read some of your work, so I – like, I enjoyed it a lot, right? So I don't think it's necessary to always try to write rational fiction necessarily, but the principles that you might be trying to, like, reach towards, I think that, like, everyone maybe in our subculture, like, in our community that would probably enjoy – uh, are are generally the ones that we try to have characters that you know act intelligently. Uh, as Eliezer put it, like level three intelligent characters are the ideal, right? But level two intelligent at the very least probably qualifies for rational fiction. Um, and absolutely don't want to dip below level one intelligent. And these are kind of like uh, guidelines I can I can describe if you want to, but it really comes down to just like how well you're putting your mind in the character's mind to decide what they're going to do next. Right. Um, and then also in terms of world building, like for a rational world, the world building is consistent enough to the point where, like, there are no obvious plot holes. There are no obvious, like, um, inconsistencies and things like that that you see all the time in movies or TV shows or many books. 
And I think the harder part is not just getting in your character's head, but getting to the head of everyone else who interacts with him, especially the antagonists, because that's where a lot of people fall down, where the antagonists are just, you know, Mm -hmm. foils for the main character and evil for the sake of evil and getting into their minds and like oftentimes just writing an entire scene from their point of view first as if they were the hero and a real person. It's a lot of fucking work, but God, it makes things better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you can you summarize the levels uh, level one two and three intelligence characters? Um, off the top of my head, if I remember correctly, and we can always do edit magic for this. Um, <laughs> level one intelligence was basically the character doesn't do anything that's obviously stupid, like idiot ball holding. Um, level two intelligence is where they act to the full capacity of pursuing their goals the way you would expect them to. So they're not like stating, oh, you know, I really want to be a um, great like firefighter or something and then just like missing very obvious like things that they should be doing to become a great firefighter um one example of this actually in in pokemon that i see in like fiction for pokemon all the time is um there's this concept of like pokemon as intelligent creatures and people write about them as intelligent creatures in fan fiction all the time but they really don't act like intelligent creatures they act like intelligent Creatures that have no agency, I should say, like in the sense of like they can speak English or whatever language they're speaking at them and they can like respond to those commands, but they don't have any goals of their own that they tend to pursue. Their personality really just boils down to they're wild. Um, They just boil down to like, you know, fight until captured. And if they're captured, they're just like do the best I can for my trainer or like win this fight or whatever it is. Like they don't have agency. They don't have sapience despite being treated as characters or described as creatures that do. And if they did have agency and, and, you know, like goals, they would act like the whole world would be structured completely differently based off of like the idea that they're literally enslaving sapient creatures um, to fight with. And like, even if you use the excuse of, well, they're fighting because they need to protect themselves from wild Pokemon, where they're fighting for like the, you know, because they like fighting, like the Pokemon themselves enjoy fighting, a level three intelligent character then would be like, okay, well, if that's actually what their goal is, like their goal is they like fighting, so they join trainers to get the best fights they can to get stronger, and that's just what Pokemon's, like, goals are, then you'd still have to imagine then a character intelligent enough to intelligently pursue that goal to, to all the options available to them, kind of in a, like, uh, like retroactive, not retroactive, uh, like a meta way. So the way I would imagine that going would be something like a level three intelligent Pokemon would be one who, like, had a deal with trainers to actually switch to another trainer if they're stronger than them. Like there was no reason to stay with one trainer after they caught them just because they want to win fights with that trainer. Like if the actual goal is to become strongest and another trainer beat their trainer, they, they would should be allowed to just go to the other trainer if they were free will creatures. Like without agency. So this this reminds me of a um (laughs) because I've been fascinated by this whole question of what the hell is rational fiction. I've been kind of following people that talk about it for a while, and uh back like a couple years ago, I think Eliezer wrote a quick Sword Art Online piece, and someone asked him what part of that was rational, and Mm -hmm. he said that a brief answer would be that uh it's a it's looking at a fictional world and seeing another way of interpreting the character's observations as corresponding to different simple generators. Mm. Uh, so more pragmatically, if you read a lot of rational fic, you'd recognize it as being of a particular tradition where there isn't like a single point of departure, but lots of little reinterpretations that are all in the standard rational fic directions, like 
people are smarter, they see the answer sooner, they have additional motivations, and everything ties together a little bit, you know, differently under these new assumptions. And that got me to wondering, almost all the rational fic I see is fanfic. Is that like a requirement or what? what is it that is that makes it so that it is such a big fanfic genre? Did you say rational or rationalist? Uh, I still uh, probably both. I well, rationalist, I guess. Okay, I, I think my understanding, just like the takeaway, is that rationalist is like the characters employ the methods of rationality, um, whether explicitly yeah. or like articulate them to each other. And rational fic can just be The Martian or um, Wild Bo's Worm, that sort of thing, right? One thing that might help clarify this also is that I made a little bit. I think I made a little mistake in, in how I described level three intelligence. It's it it almost is explicitly that you are teaching, you are, your characters are so intelligent in general, like they act intelligently and so so like completely that they are reading about their actions and thought processes will actually teach you how to be smarter. Um, like they are copyable skills. They're not just having strokes of genius like that you can't follow. Like they're actually trackable. What like what their what the reasons for their smart thinking is what the reasons for their achieving their goals is in a way that you as the reader can learn from and that's I think that's the bar that separates um, not just level two intelligence level three intelligence from level two intelligence that's the bar that separates rationalist protagonists from um, smart intel smart characters that might just be in a rational world and I think also honestly that's why things like Metropolitan Man actually could be described as rationalist because like Lex Luthor is doing a lot of really smart shit that like you can actually like follow along with and realize, oh yeah, that makes like a lot of sense. Why don't they do that in the Superman world? Yeah, it's okay, not. Cool. It's, it's not like a. It's not meant to be like a phony intelligence that's just like, oh, this just happened. Like he's smart and he can do it. It's it's mm-hmm. meant to be shown as much as possible as actual insights that are to some extent copyable. Um, you get that I think a lot more in, in rationalist because that's more what it's trying to do. Is it's trying to be copyable intelligence rather than just displayed intelligence, I guess. So getting back to the fanfic question, I think part of it is just different ways of looking at the world. And for me, I write fanfic a lot of the time because I read something and I have a question and I have, there's no answer within the text to to what my question is. Um, I just watched a movie last night where, um, they there's like this shadowy government agency and they do this thing. It's not really important, but I was thinking why in the world would that be like standard operating procedure for them? Right. And this isn't answered in the, in the text. It's not like there's no answer in the movie or probably not in supplemental material or anything, but that gets my mind going. And I think, well, okay, this is kind of dumb of them. So, you know, maybe if this is uh, a coordination problem happening at some point, or there is some yeah simple generator working in the background that has caused the world to be this way as presented. And actual answer is probably just that the author or writer or director didn't think about it or they thought about it and they said, you know, it's not important. We're not going to spend our valuable 90 minutes of screen time explaining mm-hmm. uh, operational procedures for this agency, even if we have an actual idea for it. Repeat to yourself, it's just a show, sit back and relax. Yeah. Um, But I I write fanfic a lot because I see see those things, and it gets my mind going, and I start thinking about how I would 
make small tweaks to either the background or to the reality as presented that will make it make more sense or to conform to my understanding of the world because as presented it doesn't it doesn't conform to my understanding of the world because someone maybe got lazy or they weren't necessarily lazy but it, in terms of economy of storytelling they just didn't want to include some certain thing do you think that's one of the reasons some people don't like rational fic they they look at it and they say that oh this author is highlighting uh, and making fun of all the things that weren't entirely you know 100 percent accurate about my fandom screw them when really the author is going through the laborious process of making a universe where those seemingly crazy things actually can make good sense for a reason Cough, Quidditch, cough. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I would describe most rational fiction, particularly rational fan fiction, um, but obviously, like as as some kind of labor of love. Like no matter how idiotic or or thoughtless parts of the canon might be, um, it's because you really enjoyed the thing and you wanted the thing to be better. And your interpretation of better might obviously be different from someone else's, but like there's there's kind of this highest form of like you can rewrite. Um, Harry Potter and the Message of Rationality and like write a, what I would consider a worse version of it where you just kind of remove anything that's irrational from the Harry Potter world. And that would just be, you know, that would be a different kind of story. Um, one, one example of this that was kind of done was Felix Felicis was kind of just written out because it's too overpowered if you try to take it seriously and really consider what its inclusion in the world would be. But Eliezer actually did more than that. Like he didn't just remove all the irrational things. He kept in things that were irrational and then redescribe th- like redescribe them in ways that made them totally make sense. And the best example of this, in my opinion, was the the chamber leading to the philosopher's stone, the 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 obstacle course. And like, why would Dumbledore put these obviously this obvious place with you know the pe- that people aren't supposed to go? Tell everyone about it. Fill it with these traps that first year students could clearly pass. Like, not even. Ex- extraordinary first year students i guess hermione is pretty extraordinary but the other two not so much like i guess they could like you know they needed ron for the chess and harry for the keys sort of not really but anyway like clearly first year students can get through this it was a troll too but that's you know they beat the troll by themselves earlier in the bathroom anyway the point is he described it in a way that made it like oh dumbledore obviously knew that kids would try to find this place he made it specifically so that first year students even could get through it safely. All these traps are there to make you think that you're getting through something that Dumbledore wants you to get through as just like, Oh, it's just crazy old Dumbledore making this fun little, you know, challenge for for the students. But in point of fact, the actual challenge was just the last chamber. And the reason that that was there, like all the previous chambers were there is because there are various like wards and like tricks involved that would identify if someone stronger than a first year student or stronger than a Hogwarts student in general tried to make its way through them in particular ways. And then of course Dumbledore expected Voldemort to maybe go through them. And when Voldemort goes through them with, you know, Fiendfire, the point is that like, well, he's not afraid of Dumbledore anymore because he's already, he's got like a charm card up his sleeve, but it basically served like two purposes. One that satisfied the canon explanation and one that satisfied a rationalist explanation yeah, and I think that the reason that a lot of people don't like that, other than the fact that like sometimes it does come across as bashing, I think when some people write, it is bashing, because I I sometimes feel that too when I see something that just makes it makes no sense, yeah, as it's like canon form, and I just I, it frustrates me, 
and I just want it to go away. I want it to not be part of that canon anymore. Um, that can sometimes come out in the writing. Uh, the other part of it is people have different relationships with and reactions to deconstruction and reconstruction. Like, okay, so um, people sh- will sh- uh, ship um, Hermione and Draco a lot in, in the Harry Potter fan fiction community. They'll, they'll write about, you know, um, the otter and the snake and, and on the base level, it's just Draco is kind of a bad boy and Hermione is, uh, like super smart and agenty and, and a bunch of stuff. And they, they just want to mash these two people together that don't really make that much sense. Right. And so you can deconstruct that and you could write a fic where it's just about how like Draco's legitimately a racist from this racist family and he's not like a good person. He's not, you know, his like bad boy stuff is actually horrible and toxic and there's no way that they would work together. And if they tried to be together, it would just be this horrible thing. Right. Um, that would be the deconstruction of it. And if you show that to people who like Hermione and Draco as a couple and they like imagining that without the like messy, complicated things, they're not going to like that. And they'll, they'll find that as like an assault on their fandom. Um, right, not not just an assault on the canon, but an assault on their preferred fandom. Yeah, which you actually get. I mean, you get that even for people who have different preferred pairings mm-hmm. for couples within a fandom, or people who have different fandoms like Star Wars and Star Trek. Right, famously do not get along because of the different ethos of their respective canons. But if you do a reconstruction, a lot of like if if you write a a love story between. Hermione and Draco that deals with all of the issues of actual legitimate racism and the fact that like Draco's father like killed and tortured people. And he sort of grew up in that household. And um, Hermione is basically disadvantaged within the wizarding world because of her birth. And you deal with all that stuff. People will still see it as sort of an assault on the simplicity and purity that they like in their original love story. So you could do a reconstruction and people would still get, they would still get up in arms about it because it's still an assault on the, the simpler version of the story, I guess, um, which I think it comes into play a lot for, for people. Cause you, if you write something like that, a labor of love that sort of takes all the things that you find super interesting and troublesome and tries to reconcile them. A lot of people don't want that reconciliation because that reconciliation is a, it is uh, a tacit admission that there is something that needs reconciling, I guess. Or it deletes um, it deletes the fun. Like like the the Pokemon thing I was describing earlier. Like to many people, the inherent fantasy of Pokemon is going on adventures with their intelligent, super powered best friend, animal companions. And if you just say like, look, that fantasy doesn't work at all if the, if, the, if the animal companions are sapient. Like you can have a you can have a fanfic about this where the entire purpose of the, of the story is to like establish Pokemon liberation and like give them equal rights, equal to Pokemon uh, to humans and all that stuff. If you want to go that route, but most people don't want to go that route. The fantasy requires essentially humans to be above Pokemon and yet also be intelligent and all that stuff. So like any kind of fiction that tries to mess with that messes with the inherent fantasy of, of the setting. Yeah. Um, Superman is a big one. Uh, the new DC movies, 
a lot of people, the problem they have with it, they really like Superman, but they like him as this like pure character who doesn't actually have to grapple with difficult moral decisions, right? As soon as you introduce Superman to the trolley problem, that that's kind of destroys what Superman, what, what they find appealing about Superman, I guess, right? Even if you intend for Superman to remain noble and pure and um, morally correct. And this obviously only applies to some people. Like the question was why some people maybe don't like um, or are rubbed the wrong way by rational fiction. Clearly, like this is a matter of taste that a lot of different people are going to have different responses to. But I think that's something that's kind of inescapable in fan fiction in general, but also just turned up to 11 for rational fiction because uh, of the aforementioned reasons. And also, obviously, there's the element of um, there's a sense of arrogance that comes off from writing characters that are like supposedly more intelligent than the characters around them or potentially more intelligent than the reader that's like pointing out things that the reader didn't follow up, follow, uh, like recognize when they read the canon. And, you know, some people really relish that and enjoy it. I know I certainly do. Um, but some people obviously also don't. And that's totally fine if they don't want to read it. But that's just a segment of the populace that will not enjoy rational fiction, probably. I sort of felt that way when uh, reading Methods of Rationality because I, I loved those books growing up. But I was mm-hmm. in the latter category where I relished seeing all the ways it could be done better. You know, like realizing that in hindsight, you know, Quidditch was just like this, you know, fun yeah. game that, that Rowling thought up. And it was, you know, the Seeker earned so many points so that Harry could be the most important player. Right. Mm-hmm. Like not because it made any sense as a sport. And, you know, so Harry's flippant dismissal of it in Methods of Rationality, like, who was the first seeker? The king's idiot son? <laughs> and that basically yeah. turned out to be true. Um, so, you know, it. I've, I've shown it to people who, you know, read the first few chapters and basically got to where, like, Harry is like, oh, Ron's super boring. Fuck this. And they're like, no, oh, yeah. screw this. This isn't for me. They're too good of friends. I'm not going to have this this destroy their friendship. Yeah. Um, but I've, so I, I, can, I can see how it could go that way. It's I think that you're right. Depending on your approach to things or maybe just how much you are attached to things that you like or liked as a kid or something, having it even very artfully deconstructed and reconstructed can still just be like a, ah, but that's not what I liked. Mm-hmm. Um, you said much earlier, uh, Daystar, that, uh, the, the rational fiction often shows the like the thought process of a or the rationalist fiction shows the thought process of a rationalist person like going through the world and how they react to things. So I I often feel like a fake rationalist because I don't think <laughs> in the ways that are portrayed in rationalist fiction very often. <laughs> oh, believe me, imposter syndrome all around. Don't okay. worry about that. <laughs> so like, is this is this just impossible for me? Like. I, I try to incorporate some of these things and they like help my general life attitude. But when it actually comes down to, to being like that on a day to day level, I, I cannot pull it off. And I just, I get the feeling I'm never going to be able to. Oh, I mean, I, I would be very surprised if anyone could pick up a few rationalist stories and just immediately like, bam, like the, you know, the, the real phrase I think that, is more like because a lot of people don't like the rationalist label. I chafe under it occasionally too. I think aspiring rationalist is the better one. It's just longer, right? So we don't use it that often. Um, and there's a lot of talk about how rationalist fiction itself can be like presumptuous, but like, uh, like as a title, you know? Um, but like the idea also is that like as a writer, you have the 
you have magic powers that you can use to make your characters more intelligent than you. Like you have time that you can use to think through things that your character cannot think through in the time that they actually have available to them in that circumstance. Right. There's like cheats that you can use as a writer to make you have access to way more information um, and other resources and like feedback and stuff like that from other people um, that makes your characters more intelligent. So it's not necessarily that you're writing characters that are, always realistically as intelligent as the person would be in that circumstance. But when you read other fiction, like the hero is, is way stronger or better at fighting than any realistic person could ever expect to be. And that's just kind of, and that's just kind of okay. Like he's just like, I, I mean, that's just, you know, that's how, how it works. I think I heard it called a uh, competence porn before. Right. Like yeah. <laughs> comp, comp, competence porn is so enjoyable for a lot of people because it's not necessarily that you can do that in that circumstance. But at the very least, you enjoy watching someone be competent in a particularly intelligent fashion. And if it's rationalist, if it's level three, if it's if it's explicit, even if you can't be that smart in your real life, you can still learn things from it. I try very hard in my story to put in whatever little tidbits of psychology and therapy um, that I have observed being useful to other people or has been useful to me. I've had people respond that like, reading those things in my story, they've tried applying them to their life. They found it really useful. They found it really like helpful to them. Like that's what I really care about. I don't really care if someone I've actually told someone explicitly who private messaged me about it. Like don't, I don't want anyone to read my story and then be like, can I ever be as smart as, as um, the main character? Cause that's not as interesting to me. What's interesting to me is like, can you at least be in any way? Can you at least in any way feel like you got something useful out of the story that you can apply to your own life? I think that may be partly my problem. Like, it, it, it feels like what you're saying, a lot of rational fiction is very forward-looking like that. Like, can you get something useful out of it? And mm-hmm. lots of times when I'm right, when I write, what I'm doing is, like, reliving traumas in my own past. And <laughs> that does not, that is not a forward-looking thing, you know? That is not something mm-hmm. where where thinking through problems was, was the goal of the story in so much as m- wallowing in my own misery was. And some people really enjoy those kinds of stories. Yeah. <laughs> it's like tragedy is a, is a, is a famous genre of, of story for a reason. Right. Right. It's just not very rational. Like, uh, fucking... yeah, I mean, you can probably make a rational tragedy story. It would just be depressing as hell. <laughs> <laughs> he did everything yeah. right and was really smart and lost anyway. Cause that's the way reality works. Yeah. Wah, wah. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, if, if you, I mean, it, for rational fiction, if you, want to have someone undone by the seeds of their own destruction, right? If they contain the seeds of their own destruction. That That's what undoes them in the end. Mm-hmm. You just need to make sure that your, your characters are behaving how actual people behave. And I think that's, maybe this is cynical of me, but I think that's fairly common for to actually happen to people, right? As for mm-hmm. how actual tragedies happen, you get um, some of the, recurring themes in fiction are like the sins of the father being visited upon the son. I think that's very true to life in how you have like cycles of poverty, cycles of abuse, cycles of like substance abuse, um, uh, where a lot of people will take things like that and they'll sort of transplant them into a setting that doesn't make sense or, or into a story that doesn't make sense, but like thematically works on that level, I guess. That's that's what I view as one, one of the big distinctions between rational fiction and other fiction. And yeah, Daystar is right. The, if if this were um, a branding meeting and we were sitting down like five or seven years ago or something like that, 
to decide on a label. Rational fiction is probably not what we did, we would decide it on. No, but it it sounds kind of pretentious. I I like I always go with aspiring rationalists too. And one of my friends uh, once asked me when when uh, I mentioned, oh, that guy sounds like totally like a aspiring aspiring rationalist. They were like, what the hell is an aspiring rationalist? It's like <laughs> it's basically just a rationalist. And they're like, well, why the hell are you saying aspiring? What is he not good enough to join you? And I was like, no, no, no. It's because we're not really all that full of ourselves. You know, we know there's an ideal we cannot achieve. And she was like, that sounds even more pretentious. <laughs> well, you know, it's either that or we, like it's kind of a catch twenty two because you, uh-huh. you can only you can only say you can only you can only like admire something that you actually admire as as like aspirational, right? Like you can't. We can't pretend that like we're not so like there's, there was a big uh, online argument, which is always fun um, a hmm. while back about um, like people who write rational fiction and people who enjoy rational fiction on uh, some other forum. And one of the things that like seemed to really like be a recurring theme in the critics was that like the, you, you guys are assuming that like, oh, if you're writing rational fiction, it must be like good or like it's the best way to do it or something like that. Right. And it's like, look, I'm only telling you what I enjoy in fiction. And to be honest with you, a lot of the really popular things that you can see some these days, like yourmoviesucks.com or um, CinemaSins, even though they actually have gotten pretty bad recently um, for a while now, uh, like they basically are really popular because they point out inconsistencies and illogical things and like idiotic things in in fiction. Like this isn't a a niche like sentiment, you know, like it's not only rationalists and aspiring rationalists that in like really like appreciate having these things pointed out but it is something that you have to basically make a choice of like okay do i think that this is a better way to write um i kind of do but i don't i don't want that to at the same time make other people feel like if they don't read rational fiction that that non-rational fiction is bad because i enjoy a lot of non-rational fiction too oh hell yeah so it's so it's like i don't know if i'm trying to like necessarily put one on a, a hierarchy over another but i definitely don't want to also pretend to myself that like i don't think the things that makes rational fiction good are not inherently good so i want to ask all three of you guys kind of a leading question so that i can uh, <laughs> so that i can preach about what i think rational fiction is but um both worm and unsung and uh more people are probably familiar with worm because that's just insanely popular uh very big uh in rational circles and have often been described as rational fiction but i believe i mean i know alexander or scott alexander specifically said unsung is not rational fiction even though i think it is and lots of other people do and pretty much the consensus seems to have come down that worm probably isn't either and yet Mm. they're still they both still feel very rational fiction-esque and I want to know what you guys think about those two and why they do or don't count as rational fiction. I can jump in first. Mm-hmm. Do uh, it. So with Worm, um, so like I, I guess we can take the word of God on Unsong. If he says it's not rational thick, then <laughs> if he says so. But like to me, death of the know, author. He could be wrong. Right. So <laughs> let's 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 go with that. Like the character, you know, they they find uh, the whatever the word of power that insoles something. And he's like, his first thought isn't like, Oh my God, I accidentally made this computer sentient. Now I've got this problem. He's like, Oh shit. Sold things are the ones that can do these. Like, so he does the, he does immediately yeah. the rational thing. You know, if, if, uh, if professor Quirrell was in that university, he'd have done the exact same fucking thing. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think if you can say if professor Quirrell would have done this, that's the <laughs> rational thing. That might be good will come. Um, 
So similar to Worm, I mean, the the main character is a 14 year old girl who can control bugs and she lives in a world with like, you know, people like Superman and, uh, you know, people who can transform into dragons and, you know, mm-hmm. basically literal dragons and, you know, world ending behemoths. And so like, what is this bug girl going to do? She's going to get super fucking creative and do a lot of cool <laughs> things. And uh, if if it can be so i think in those sense they're at least rational um mm-hmm. if they're rationalist if you have to be teaching to do that i mean or at least if you have to be able to learn stuff i don't know what you could learn from unsung i'm sure some people can but like worm um i mean there's you know the whole one of the main lessons to it would might be like know what your limitations are and then figure out what your strengths are and exploit the hell out of those mm-hmm. um so you know, she, she is aware that she has great, you know, battlefield awareness because she's aware of everything of every bug in the vicinity. So, like, she could put a ladybug in everything and she's aware of everybody around. You know, that's, um, you know, it's easy to imagine somebody in the in that universe getting the bug power and being like, man, I drew the short straw here. This sucks. What am I going to, you know, mm-hmm. what am I going to clear all the spiders out of my house? Great. But <laughs> um, I think the the exploitation in a way that, especially with Worm too, just like, so many times did I, you know, jaw drop and be like, "No way, that is awesome." Um, there's a part it, where she's fighting in an intelligence monster. way, right? Not necessarily like a, like flashy powers. You mean to- oh yeah, no, it's the intelligence yeah. way exactly. The example I was going to give was uh, she's fighting this um, this guy who, the longer he fights, the stronger he gets, mm-hmm. and he transforms into like I don't think you ever see his final form, but he looks more and more like a dragon the more the fight goes on. He gets like 15 feet tall or something, and he can mm-hmm. you know rip you know, houses apart and, you know, she can't put him down. So there's like this other guy that's like a mutant and his blood is like super toxic. So when she's got the big dragon guy distracted, uh, she dips, she has like cockroaches dip a caterpillar or some toilet paper or something in that, that mutant guy's blood. And then, uh, pushes it into the dragon guy's eyeballs, like to get it into his, into his system. Like that is outside the box thinking. And, mm-hmm. you know, I would never have thought of that. The only thing I thought of was like, okay, I guess if it comes down to it, I would shove a bunch of bugs down someone's throat and, mm-hmm. you know, suffocate them. And, and yeah, she does that, but it is like yeah. among the creative things that she does. I'll answer next. Cause I think Alexander would probably be doing like a really great job of, of rounding out this discussion. Um, there's a, there's an element that we haven't discussed so far that is very prevalent in rational fiction that would call like munchkinry. Um, and munchkinry is absolutely in worm and it's absolutely in, in uh, unsung. And what munchkinry basically is, is this term from tabletop gaming where you are essentially, like you kind of said, like taking the things available to you and exploiting the hell out of them. Like, and until you basically can min max your, your advantages uh, in a way that like catapults you into like success, like, that seems way out of proportion to uh, what you would, would normally what people might normally be able to consider as capable you're capable of. And um, Munchkinry is a very strong theme in rational fiction, particularly rationalist fiction. It's kind of where a lot of the um, fantasy of rational fiction comes from, like the, the uh, self-insert gratification of a lot of rationalist fiction comes from is like seeing the character, like exploit the hell out of their environment and their powers and stuff like that. Um, in that sense, I think Worm is absolutely very rationalist-esque, rational adjacent. Um, and I would say that Taylor, the main character, like you could totally write a rationalist 
explicitly rationalist version of worm and it would probably go more or less exactly the same way right like it would like there was very few situations i can think of where i think the rationalist taylor would do something better than the the taylor in the story did so in that sense i i, I think that's why it's so popular amongst rational um readers and same with uh, unsung like you you were saying where like you know the main character like has this opportunity drop in their lap and their immediate thought is how to best exploit it and that i think is a very rational thing to do but the caveat here is that the world itself in both of these cases are i think they're very close to rational but are not necessarily so um part of that comes i think from i don't think the i mean the explicit direction that Wildbow was going for worm obviously wasn't because he's i don't think he was aware of the rational fiction in general when he started it out um but you don't need to be right you can still write a rational fiction without that but my point is more that like he he was writing a world that was as realistic as possible given the situation that he wrote it in um and i think that i think he did a great job of making it what i would consider a rational world but there was still some things that kind of didn't really work out that way um, and Unsung is kind of the same way. Like Unsung is hilarious and very brilliant and witty, uh, but the world itself is not exactly rational. Uh, and I think, if, if, assuming Alexander agrees with me, I'd, I'd, I'll, I'd be happy to let him expand on that. But if not, I'd be happy to hear why. Yeah, um, I, I would describe both Worm and Unsung as as rational adjacent. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of the stuff that Worm does. Like if you watch um, like Saturday morning cartoons with like superheroes and supervillains, you'll see a lot of the stuff that you see in Worm where people will do they'll they'll do a hit and like people will just get up from it. Um, There's very little intent to kill going on. But in Worm, there are actual reasons behind that. Um, I don't I don't think the world of Worm fully holds up in a number of ways and it's held together in three or four places by um more wishy- <laughs> not, well more wishy-washy stuff there there's some mm-hmm. outcome pumps in terms of like why do people not use their powers for mundane utility well i mean giant spoilers for worm right <laughs> would, would come from that because it's but it, there's some setting conceits behind that that just sort of have to exist and don't necessarily exist for all that solid of reasons. Um, but more generally, like if people uh, it's partly it's, there's a lack of intent to kill because of the sort of established um, cops and robbers situation where people are sort of playing to satisfy um, their urges to some extent. And there uh, it was beneficial to people in control to, create things this way. And then there are also Manton limits in effect to answer the question of, well, if you can create these, these like force fields that slice through solid steel, why are you not just doing that to kill people who are tr- trying to kill you, which you never see in like Saturday morning cartoons. Cause that's mm-hmm. too horrific, but which by the way, in the real world, right? right which, which are good mechanics to put in the world building. Like you, you want to explain these things in some way. It's not that it's bad that he included those, um, I think th- th- those are part of what makes the world of worms so rational is that like he has these explicit explanations for it. But yeah, yeah, and I mean that I disagree with worm as rational mostly in the broader background. This is all the stuff that needs to be true to make this world 
as it is. There, I think there's some some fuzziness there and some scotch tape that shows a little bit. Um, it's not like a problem for the work necessarily, but just I think how how the world of Worm was created was that Wild Bo had read a lot of comic books and had a lot of interest in superheroes and then wanted to keep that um, keep the genre as intact as possible and then went looking for ways to work backwards and make it so that that was the case, which is why you get things like the Manton limit and some explanations for um, like, why, why do people even go out in costume? Right. That's, that's one of the big, if you're going to write superhero fiction and you want to do it in a, rational way you need to answer that question like why why are these people with these powers going out in capes to like fight or do crime why would a criminal attract attention the, to themselves yeah the heroes the heroes make sense the villains is the problem the heroes right. like the heroes could totally work out that way unless you also want to talk about super competent heroes that don't care about um fame and like law and are just basically you know just doing the best thing they can secretly so that they're not trying negative attention but even putting that aside the villains is the main question. Like, why are the villains so explicitly villains? Yeah. Like, what? Why are they? Why are they in costume at all? Why did they go through the effort to be more recognizable? And Worm does have some answers to that as well. But, mm-hmm. but um, I mean, you 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 do also have to take into account Wild Bo saying like this is not rational fiction, which I think definitely the author does apply. But um, without that statement, I maybe lend a little more lenience to it. Or if Wildo had said, this is rational fiction, I would take that more as, I don't know, like an aspirational label, I guess. Um, I like that. Yeah, the reason I wanted to go first was I suspected correctly that both of your answers would be better than mine. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, you, you guys are the experts at this. It was, um, I think, yeah, the... They, like, the whole cops and robbers thing. So, you know, she didn't, you didn't read all of Worm, but, like, basically... The question is like, you know, why are they wearing kid gloves the whole time? You know, some people, you know, they might not be able to split each other in half with their powers. Um, uh, Alexander talked about the, or actually, I think you guys both talked about the the Manton effect, which is like uh, powers that um, can destroy things often don't destroy people or their caster or user or whatever. Um, like, for example, well, that's not a good example. Uh, there's essentially arbitrary limits on, on what you can do with your power that intelligent, lethal intent people would really quickly exploit. So a real, really easy example of this that you see actually in some other fiction. Uh, has anyone here read um, Aragon series? Yes. Oh, okay. yeah. The Words of Death. Yeah. So there's like yeah. there's there's like this ability that's fairly common in all sorts of fiction called telekinesis. And if you telekinesis, the way telekinesis works is you can move an object with your mind and you often don't actually need to even see the object directly. You just kind of apply force to things. Right. And so anyone who uses telekinesis to pick a car up and throw it at someone is an idiot because what you can actually do with telekinesis to kill someone is just kind of twist their neck a little bit (laughs) and they die. That's the thing that all humans basically die from. And you can do it like really easily with telekinesis. You don't need to apply that much force at all. So the, why can't people in worm do that if they have something like telekinesis because the Manton effect says so. Yeah, and then the Manton effect itself has an explanation mm-hmm. within the text, right? You could actually just stop at saying, well, Manton effect, and, and then the buck stops there, and you don't explain why the Manton effect exists. Worm goes a step further for that. but Which, are, which is why I, I totally think it's okay for people. Like, I, don't have, I never really correct anyone if they say, 
rational fiction like worm like i'm happy to call it like that i'm happy to include it under the umbrella i think almost everyone who enjoys rational fiction would enjoy worm i think many people who might not even enjoy rational fiction would enjoy worm like worm is just great fiction and i think it can be applied the label either way so i don't i don't like think it's a flag worth like sticking on a hill and dying over yeah but I, technically I, speaking yeah i personally consider both a worm and unsung to be rational fiction mm-hmm. despite their author's protests and I, the reason I have for this is, like, like I said, I've been for probably a good two years been trying to figure out what rational fiction is. And a few months ago, I was going through some of my fan mail because um, I, I do the Harry, I did the Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality podcast, and yep. it, it wasn't like often, but every now and then I would get fan mail, and it was like always really cool. It kept me going. It made me like you know happy that I was doing this thing. And I went through some of it, and I noticed like a big theme in at least half of them was people saying things along the lines of, "I've I've always felt kind of like an outcast, and that there was no one like me." And mm-hmm. then I read this, and for like the first time ever, I saw myself represented in fiction, and it was amazing. And I, I kind of hate to use the word representation because I feel like it's almost been co-opted into the culture wars, which I do not like and do not want to get into. But I do think a lot of rational fiction does just come down to it's representational of our like my people and the way our mm-hmm. minds work. And it's not really seen very often. We are a bit of a minority, but there is a certain way that our brains tend to to interpret the world and it isn't seen often and when you do see it especially when you haven't seen it for your whole life suddenly it's it's this great and amazing thing that there's other people like you out there and so to me rational fiction is rational fiction that represents the life experience of someone with our sort of neuro architecture which is which is why i think both of those count so kind of yeah so kind of the sensation of like if this if reading this makes me feel like part of the in-group then it's rational fiction to the rational fiction in group, which I think makes sense to a certain extent because we are, we are a, a um, subculture that is culturally Like it's not strictly about always rationality, which I think you guys have both mentioned on this podcast a, a few times. Like there's a culture to rationality, not just a um, thinking process or like set of axioms. Yeah. yeah I forgot the author on this, but uh, someone said that, um, the the they they're comparing rationalism to different uh schools of of fiction and mentioned uh social realism as a artistic movement and said that people involved in the socialist movement and that were heavily skilled and schooled in socialist theory they they would create their own art of course uh but they also went out after they had this this genre and went out into the world to look for good examples of it um and maybe not like explicitly in those terms but things that their community got excited by. And I think you said uh, just a little earlier that you don't have to necessarily be trying to write rationalist fiction to write rational fiction or, um, well, rational, rationalist. Sorry about the endings mm-hmm. on those, but, uh, we'll so, yeah, yeah. Do you, do you guys, I, I'm, I'm assuming you agree with that. So what, what are some of the like earlier pre, rational fiction works out there that you guys are big fans of and you think are, you know, would be nice to co-opt <laughs> with or without people's permission. Um, okay. So I have, I'm going to say three. Um, first is a lot of Charles Strauss's stuff. Um, there is a, he writes, 
Laundry File series is his big one, and then the, Mer- the Merchant Princes series is another one. And the Merchant Princes is sort of his take on um, portal fantasy and sort of like travel to an alternate world, except it's um, this like 33-year-old tech reporter, um, and she gets put into this world of groin market, which uh, has all of these like it's fallen into this this development trap that she explicitly recognizes as such. And most of the series is her. Um, most of the first series is her trying to sort of like pull it, pull their culture that is this way for very specific reasons up out of it, um, which is like really, it's really neat to see. There's, there's that same like focus on processes of thought and how systems are sort of constructed and put together um, in his laundry file series. I think the most, that I was ever like, this is rational fiction. Um, there was a, uh, one of his books was the Rhesus chart. Um, and this, uh, scrum team become of, uh, programmers for, uh, high frequency trading algorithms. They become vampires and they hold, they have these like Pert and Gantt charts for like how they're going to deal with their vampirism. And they do all this like research and stuff and they have like a burn down for it. It's it's amazing, but it's like exactly how you would approach that problem if you were those people with those like sets of skills and outlooks on the world. And it's all like he does a ton of research. He's one of those authors that shows it a lot. Um, so Charles Strauss, mostly not all of his works. Um, and he I don't know, he has his own outlook on the world, which is reflected in his writing, obviously, as most authors do. Um, the Jumper series by Stephen Gould, uh, not the movie, which is kind of <laughs> does its own thing. But uh, Jumper is very focused on like what a person with these specific well-defined powers would do in that situation. And a lot of it is kind of a focus on cycles of abuse and stuff like that. But then the, the like applications of powers are all very well thought out in terms of um, how you would grapple with the limits. And then later books in the series include like going to space and stuff like that. And like deorbiting satellites, um, which is super cool and super like in the ways of thinking that I would expect of rational fiction. Uh, and then the last one was um, world war Z or not, not world war Z, but the precursor to that, which was the, uh, the zombie survival guide by Max Brooks which is a it sets up its own very specific rules about zombies and how they work and then goes through um, exactly how you would go about defeating those zombies, given the tools and training available to you. What are the outcomes of zombies being this way, this like specifically defined way? And then how do people deal with the outcomes? And it goes through first order and second order effects of like zombies and how to fight them and responses to them in a way that I think is very typical of rational fiction. And then World War Z, the book, not the movie, which was its own thing. Again, um, so bad. Again, yeah. <laughs> um, the, the book World War Z is sort of following that on a more like global scale and telling personal stories. It's a little less so than, than the first book, which is just, it's not even a narrative. It's just, these are zombies, and here are how you how you fight them. This I, I did all this thinking on the matter in book form. So that, those those are my three that I'm going to co-opt. 
Okay, so I don't know if these would necessarily be co-opted, but I would definitely feel like I was remiss not to mention Ender's Game. Um, Ender's Game, I don't think is a... I mean, it's definitely not a rationalist fiction. But at the same time, I feel like I learned a hell of a lot reading it when I was 13, 14, something like that. Um, Like, I... Look, so like all fiction... I think this is something that has been kind of an axiom of mine since I was old enough to really get into reading. All fiction teaches things. It's not that rationalist fiction is the specific only thing that like is written. Not only is written specifically to teach, but it's not the only thing that you can learn things from. You you should learn something from any fiction that you read, um, or rather you could learn something from any fiction that you read. I think rationalist fiction specifically just tries to teach things about um, cognition, thinking, um, winning, whatever that means in terms of like, um, Utility, um, what's it called? Utility rationality? No. Uh, I'm instrumental rationality. Instru- instrumental, thank you. Um, instrumental rationality, that kind of thing. So Endo's game just did a really good job of expressing to me what a child in this situation, super smart though he was, should actually do to overcome the challenges he was facing. And... Um, you know, the world was fairly well put together. I don't I don't think there are any plot holes in it as far as I can I can remember. Like I've read it at least six or seven times. Um, like it's it's a it's a fairly solid like book um, that leads to a couple fairly solid series um, that split off from it. Um, but the book, it's, the first book itself, for sure, at least, is, I think, very well put together and does a good job of teaching what a thinky main character um looks like shows what a thinky main character looks like um and again like in terms of heroes that are prized for their intelligence over their might or prized for their intelligence over their like ability to love or whatever it is that like most fiction uses to save the day um endo wigan is you know has got to be up there in terms of uh, uh traditional fiction um so ender's game is the first one um I was going to say World War Z also, actually, because World War Z is one of the first books I ever read that was um, just really felt felt like it did such a good job of describing what a worldwide phenomenon would look like from a worldwide perspective. Um, There's a few things in it that's like a little bit like, eh, I don't know if that's exactly how the military would react to this. Like, it feels like the military in this particular circumstance was made a bit less competent than it should be just to get the the plot going um, or this part of the plot going in any case. Uh, But it was a example of how the military reacted, whereas other militaries for other countries reacted in different ways that were more effective. So it's like, this is a failure mode that this particular military reacted to because of its culture. Um, I don't want to spoil anything, but like, it's a really good book. If anyone has read World War Z, by the way, World War Z is amazing. Uh, even I would, I would I'd probably say it's my favorite piece of zombie fiction, and I think it is. Um, and so, yeah, seeing seeing that in a story was really well, like, really well-constructed world with characters acting as they actually really would. Um, I'm, I'd like to co-opt that, then, if possible. Uh, third one... I don't know if I really have a third one. There's a bunch of other things, that, like, a bunch of other books I could I could name, but I don't think I would be really feel like they deserve the title um or there would be there would be parts of other books i should say that i think did really good job like things like um dragon riders of pern um a lot of parts from 
Oh, Aragon, actually, the Aragon series had a lot of really good world building and solid like explanations for why the world worked the way it did and all these things. And in particular, um, anyone who enjoyed, I'm not going to say it's a spoiler. Anyway, I will just say that there's, there's a specific part of Aragon series that I think is really shows kind of the best in terms of like what an intelligent character does when faced with a seemingly insurmountable problem. Um, yeah. If we cut this, can you tell me what part that was? Cause I really enjoyed those books too. Yeah. So, uh, while I was reading HPMOR, the solution to how to deal with a Voldemort, um, came to my mind because I'd already read the Aragon series. And the solution was if you can't kill the person, attack the mind because the mind is something that they didn't necessarily think to protect as well as they, if they're, if they're so focused on invincibility. So the way Aragon beats, um, Oh, sorry, is this a spoiler for... It's too late now. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> uh, the, way, the way Aragon beats uh, Galbatorix, who has spent like over 100 years layering magic upon magic upon magic upon ward upon ward upon ward on himself, who has like the, the combined might of like hundreds of dragons to draw upon and all this bullshit like evil final boss stuff that like... Like he's, you spent four books basically thinking like, how is he going to beat this guy? There's no way he's going to beat this guy. And he keeps getting stronger, but also he just never gets strong enough. It's literally like Luke Skywalker running after Death Star with a lightsaber. Like, <laughs> like, and like, it's not going to work, Luke. Like, this isn't going to, this isn't going to happen for you. And that's the, that's the sentiment basically throughout the fight. It's like, yeah, he's really strong, but Galbatorix is way stronger. There's no way he's going to win this. And the way he wins essentially is by projecting like all the suffering that like Galbatorix has caused him like into his mind so that he basically just has to like experience that. And Galbatorix never expected an attack from that perspective because like he didn't consider himself to be causing suffering in that way. Like he didn't really care. Like it wasn't something that he predicted would be used against him. Um, so it's a way to like skirt around the security fence or over the security fence or whatever you want to call it. Um, in the same way that Harry uses against Voldemort. Awesome. Loved it. Yeah. There, there's been a few times in the past where people who were big fans of a budding genre, uh, like put to, put together an anthology. I'm I'm thinking specifically of uh, Mirror Shades when Cyberpunk was first getting big, the first Cyberpunk mm-hmm. anthology. Do you think there would be at all any value in like creating an anthology of the the best like short rationalist fiction that's out there, whether the people you know are are admitted rational writers or not i'm i'm thinking specifically peter watts maybe some of his stuff definitely some of Ted mm-hmm. chang stuff do you think there's any value in trying to go finding doing that sort of thing would anyone buy that probably i can't i can't imagine it would um it would be unpopular like in the sense of people being upset about it. i think the major hurdle might just be um getting all the people's like consent to, to put this label on their work maybe mm-hmm. um since we're talking about like other authors outside the rational sphere um yeah but like i'm not even sure i would buy something like that necessarily especially with all the other good rational fic that's out there all the time so would either of you do you think you would buy something like that if someone had put it out like I, I'm, I'm seriously trying to gauge whether this is an interesting project and as much as i like the idea of it Mm-hmm. I don't think I would buy that copy myself necessarily. I think anthologies are always a tough sell mm-hmm. for me. Um, I also think, like, if you look at the subreddit, um, most of it is dominated by long form, mm-hmm. and in, in a lot of cases, extreme long form 
fiction that's like doorstopper yeah. length, if not longer. Um, that's the main thing that stops me from reading it. I just don't have the time to read that much. Yeah. No, I, I, I feel the same way. I have so little time to read. Um, but yeah, I've, I've thought about, um, cause I, I, I'm a mod there and I, I run the weekly challenge. I've thought about getting some of those stories together as like a, a compiled, I don't know, like 200 page. This is the best of the short fiction that's been published there, which I, in theory, have the mm-hmm. social pull to do at least. Oh yeah. It's, it's a time investment for, for one thing, but yeah. And to clarify, would you be thinking of marketing this towards like people who already read rational stories or for the general public? Cause that's what I was thinking of in fir- the first place. I mean, I would prefer for it to be the general public so people would get an idea of what it is. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's, that's, that is definitely going to be hard to do, I think, because it's, you've got, first of all, people who are not familiar with why they should read this anthology in the first place. Um, and you'd have to do something like put a fairly famous, you know, like fairly famous author. Like if you like stories like this from this person, Martian's probably a good one to use. Um, you would like these other stories from these people, right? And that might work, but um, yeah, it would be a tough sell to the general public, I think. For the record, that's what I was going to say. Mm-hmm. Oh well. But uh, uh, just the last, just the last part about the Martian. Everything else was too thoughtful for me to come up with. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, if if it's if it's something that you want to try in small form, what might be worth doing is, um, like Alexander was saying, like find the sorts of flash fiction that people can easily put together in like one work and be like, if you enjoy this kind of thing, try these out. And if enough people like it in like a downloadable one dollar EPUB or whatever, um, you know, you can use that data to then decide if a more ambitious um, project is worthwhile. Yeah, it's it's sort of a marketing question. Mm-hmm. which uh, I'm not super well-versed in. Yeah, I mean, part of the reason I write online is because I can't market for my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I do I do it partly because the, the thought of like going through all the effort of traditional publishing is just so draining. Oh Kudos my to God. you, by the way, Inuyash, but yeah, for that. <laughs> it, it, is a, <laughs> it is a fucking nightmare, let me tell you. That it is constant rejection, and the worst part is having written a novel. I I cannot like get anyone to read it because I guess I'm just not good at writing query letters. You you send off this three paragraph little you know summary teaser thing, and then people are like, nah, not interested in yeah. seeing any of that. I'm like, God damn it! It's only three paragraphs. <laughs> yeah, I've I've written three novels. I tried shopping around one of them, and it was just so frustrating that I just yeah. I just stopped. I was like, this is. This is clearly a failure on my part that I need to readdress at some point in the future. But then I found the whole wonderful world of publishing straight to the internet, which, you know, may not be the thing I want to do always, but for now, wee! Yeah. I'm I'm considering that more and more. My my strategy is just I'll become so popular that the publishers will come, <laughs> come to, to me. Yeah. This is the wild mode method. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm, I think I'm I'm getting close. Yeah. You know, it's I, I, worked for a few people. Hugh mm-hmm. Howey, the Andy Weir. Yeah. Oh, and now you've got the Bayesian conspiracy bump. I think that'll push over the top. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. It'll really help you reach new audiences. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but yeah, Wild, Wild Bow's fucking amazing in mm. many ways. And this is one of the ways that he is, that he's managed to actually, I think, really hit it big time. I would not be surprised at all if, like, 
five to ten years from now there's an HBO series on like Worm or something. Um, oh, and his productivity and, is insane. Yeah, that's part of it. That's part of it for sure. The, the about the ability to write that much, but I think Alexander could actually get really close to that if not match it. Um, yeah, you know, I'm I'm a hundred words per day behind him. Oh <laughs> wow, nice. As, as my running like the running average you're... of worth the candle behind a uh, Worm. So. I mean, that, that's like saying that you're, you know, five seconds behind Usain Bolt. I think that's, that's <laughs> the same. Yeah, yeah I, I do. I do write a lot. I do not write. I do not write nearly that much. My chapters are long, but they only come out once a month. And, um, you know, one day it would be great if I could try writing full time and see how that goes. But in the meantime, yep, I got to some bills we we are going to direct link to both of your guys' stuff and the podcast uh on our on our post for this but would you also like to say into the microphones what they are so people can hear it on the um on the podcast sure um i'm daystar eld online so if you put daystar eld into pretty much any like discord sky well i should i don't know if it's advertised it's too late um daystar eld is what I, what I am online so if you go to daystar you can find my website and anything you might want to find from me would be there most of the time. Yeah, I'm working on that, consolidating it all there. Yeah, um, and uh, I'm Alexander Wales online. It's uh, all the hits for that army. I feel bad for the people whose real name is that. <laughs> I dominate, completely have dominated um, search, but alexanderwales.com is my website. So. I mean, at least you're not like a famous cannibal or something. So yeah. you know, if you're going to get a, a wrong result with a Google when Googling your own name, then I'd rather be some author than, you know, some some bad news. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And both of them have Patreons for their stuff. And they are also doing the Rationally Writing podcast about writing rationally. You guys have time to indulge me. I mean, now I've got, you know, three rationalist writers on the line. Um <laughs> You know, I I really enjoyed the conclusion to Methods of Rationality, and if you haven't read it, skip this part. This will ruin the story, so this isn't just like you know uh, a minor spoiler. So that's your this is the end of the episode for you, unless you are ready to have that. Anyway, um, is there a good consensus in the in the rationalist writing community, or maybe you know I didn't see it on the Methods of Rationality subreddit, which I I. You know, I'm, I'm on. It's on my homepage and stuff. What is there a good canon explanation for why the graveyard scene went down the way it did? Why did the super intelligent Coral Morn <laughs> keep his wall? What the hell was he thinking? I I personally have never held that against him. Uh, he did need Harry to keep the wand to do the the uh, the unbreakable vow. And at that point, Harry was already naked and paralyzed and surrounded by 12 Death Eaters that would Avada Kedavra him in a half second if he spoke in a non-parcel tongue language. So, I mean, if, if I was like a chief of police and I had a perp paralyzed, naked and surrounded by 12 of my guys pointing their guns at him, I would also feel pretty safe at that point. I think it, it is a reasonable oversight and i don't know maybe he would have wanted harry to demonstrate any spells that he was going to teach him i i just don't think it's that much of an oversight honestly okay yeah the spell demonstration actually makes sense for not like destroying the wand but yeah i mean you're not just staring down a perp you're a super intel you're a really smart guy staring down a world-ending threat right um but no i think you're right like maybe that is 
and I'll, I'll, I'm looking forward to the other, your other two responses, but the it could just be, hey, look, this is what happens when you don't cover literally all of your bases. And when you think you got them all covered, think again. Yeah, there's this thing that I like to say a lot, which is um, anything's possible. Rationality is based on what's probable. Like rational decisions are based on probability. There's always some chance that there's some crazy rabbit that your enemy can pull out of their hat. Uh, if you can... If if you have actual like if you have actual infinite time and resources to to plan for every eventuality, then sure, plan for every eventuality. But if not, you kind of just have to make a decision after a certain point that you've made enough effort to to address all the probable and even a few of the only merely possible outcomes. Um, and Voldemort wanted him to show him magic, and he needed his wand to show him magic, so that's basically why he let him keep his wand. I think if I was rewriting it. I might make it a little bit less obvious. Like, I don't know. I might, I might do something like Voldemort. Um, Have like, him drop it and it touches his toe or something. Right. Like if there's some, if there's some kind. So the thing is that remember that Harry didn't even. Like the, the thing that Harry used to defeat him was something that, as far as Voldemort knew, was literally impossible. Like it wasn't just like, oh, you know, he's too young to do that or something like that. Um, right. So, so to that to that extent, like he did something that, from Voldemort's perspective, was literally impossible. And he he had done a few of those before, so Voldemort shouldn't have been completely, you know, unprepared for something him, him doing something literally impossible. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, but honestly, also there's this- Voldemort's only like completely rational, absolutely safe uh, action would be just to immediately kill Harry. Like the second that uh, he was no longer bound by the we can't kill each other curse to murder him on the spot, but he mm-hmm. didn't want to do that. He still wanted to interrogate him a little bit. And given that he took all the, like you said, all the reasonable precautions at this point, you know, he couldn't know for sure that even without the wand that Harry, Harry could do wandless, wordless, you know, insane partial, magic, partial, partial transfiguration. Right. Right. Uh, at that point, why, why couldn't he, if he could do it with the wand, why can't he do it without a wand? They're both equally impossible. So Yeah. To, to give my own answer, uh, this was pointed out during the final exam, um, which was a wonderful time yes. on the subreddit. Yes, that I, was fantastic. Mm-hmm. I um, helped coordinate some of it, especially on the subreddit, because I'm I mod there. Um, Hell yes, you did. It was awesome. Um, <laughs> I remember the, the whole this, thing. It was great. This, this was pointed out at the time where some people were like, okay, like, I think the problem the reason that that comes up every once in a while is you have Voldemort going to such extreme measures in other ways that it somehow seems more realistic if he's less cautious, if, if, if there aren't like 20 layers of precaution, right? It's strange credulity after a certain point. Well, yeah. Like, like if you, if you have, um, if, if he is going to the extent of, uh, you know, there's a diminishing marginal utility on precautions that he's taking, right? And so, if he's going to such an extent, then it becomes slightly less believable that he would not continue to go if he's if he's going that far into the diminishing marginal utility of of like of taking the wand is one of the lower hanging fruits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that is that is my like. If I were re- rewriting it, I'd make Voldemort less cautious. Because each thing that he does increases the amount of time that Harry is left alive and increases the room for prophecy to to do something, right? And if you read 
prophetic stories, it's always the people who go to those those extreme lengths that the extreme lengths are what backfire on them, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it is one of the things that I think about that scene is that it becomes less believable to me because it, it's low hanging fruit. Yeah, I was going to say also, there is the sense to me of like, I really enjoyed that whole period of time and that the, you know, the, I think the ending was great and all that stuff. Um, I did feel a little bit, not cheated exactly. Um, maybe disappointed is too strong too. There was a little bit of something uh, that the answer turned out to be a, essentially a, a method of violence that won him it. What I, what I thought would work, what I thought would turn out to be the answer was some form of persuasion, was some form of like, applied thinking to the problem in a way that like would make Voldemort realize that what he was doing was actually a mistake. Um, and would I have been more satisfied if that was how he won, that like he didn't have the wand in his hand, like he wasn't given the wand. Voldemort basically said, look, you need to just describe how you did the magic. I'll figure it out myself. I've got time. Just describe how you did the magic. No wand for you. You don't have to show it to me. Um, and I'll save, you know, I'll let, I'll, I'll spare someone for everything that you, every secret you give me. Um, and he's figured out a way to win without using his wand. I probably would have enjoyed that ending better. Maybe, probably. Like it was a really neat trick, so maybe not. Uh, but at the same time, there's like a dozen other ways that Voldemort actually could have been defeated that he didn't plan for. Depending on how thorough, like Harry's, you know, like pre-planning was, or Dumbledore's pre-planning was. Or like Moody's pre-planning was like a, a Harrier jet could have fired a rocket at them from far away or something like that. Like he didn't have, as far as we know, right? He, we don't actually know, but like he didn't have some kind of ward up to stop like explosions. Um, that was, I think one of the threats Harry made about antimatter or something. Um, like he didn't have sentries posted like for, as far as we know again, but it doesn't seem like because otherwise Harry wouldn't have known about them and then he wouldn't have won. Um, like he didn't have sentries posted for like all these outside the realm of, of probability outcomes. Uh, and so the low-hanging fruit was what what got him in the end, but it could have just easily been something else. Yeah, no, that's great. I think uh, you know the main reason I was asking was well, a because I I sort of just always talked it up to like, well, I guess he didn't think of that. But mm-hmm. um, I'm also I've got a coworker reading this right now, and I'm anticipating him asking me, you know, what the hell happened there. And now I've got three great answers to give him. So <laughs> um, awesome! That was very satisfying. No problem. This has been fun. Awesome. Yeah. You got anything uh, else, Stephen? No, this was a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. I thought I'd kind of fall behind, and I, you know, I'm sure that there's, you know, stuff I didn't get because I'm not, I'm the only one here who doesn't write. Uh, I did write one thing that got like 11 upvotes on the rationality subreddit once. Um, <laughs> Congrats! Uh, yeah, I, I think uh, it was the, uh, the one of the one of the weekly challenges. It was uh, the like Disney's uh, rationalist Disney or something. Oh, uh, okay. Oh, and yeah. I did, I did a, a smart Aladdin. Well, my my stab at a smart Aladdin. Um, and basically the, the trick was that rather than just wish for more wishes, cause that's against the rules, he wished away the rule that there was a rule against wishing for more wishes, <laughs> thus wishing two of his first wishes on more wishes and then had infinite wishes at the end. Um, I like but, it. yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, munchkinery is, you know, the only thing yeah. I've like, gone for there, but, uh, yeah, I, you know, like I said earlier with, um, you know, uh, your with uh, your job, but it's same thing with writing. Like I don't have the ability to like to just come up with things. I don't have like this story in me that's trying to get out. So I really love hearing people talk about the process, and uh, this is a lot of fun for me. So thanks, guys. Yeah. Cool. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you all, and have a great evening. 
You too. Have a good night. <laughs> Cheers. Bye-bye.